This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Today, author Rebecca Roberts is here to discuss her new book, Untold Power. If you're listening on KXCV or the Bearcat Public Media app, welcome. I'm glad you're here. On Real Fiction, I have conversations with authors, journalists, and changemakers. I look for stories and reportage that encourage us to look at hard issues with fresh eyes. All Real Fiction program guests have something in common. They are grappling with something complicated, an uncomfortable history with ethical gray areas. And we're opening up Women's History Month with a fantastic new biography on First Lady Edith Wilson. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. I'll be back in a moment with author Rebecca Boggs-Roberts. My guest today is Rebecca Boggs-Roberts, author of Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. Rebecca Boggs-Roberts is an award-winning educator, author, and speaker, and leading historian of American women's suffrage and civic participation. Her books include the award-winning The Suffragist Playbook. She is currently the Deputy Director of Events at the Library of Congress. Rebecca serves on the board of the National Archives Foundation, on the Council of Advisors of the Women's Suffrage National Monument Foundation, and on the Editorial Advisory Committee of the White House Historical Association. She lives in Washington, D.C. Rebecca, welcome to Real Fiction. Thank you so much for having me. Edith Wilson finally gets a close-up in this book. It's Again, it's titled Untold Power. And Edith may be the most underrated or misunderstood first lady in American history. And in the introduction, you write, so here is Edith Wilson's story in a spirit of empathy, curiosity, fascination, and accountability. So now you're somebody who has access to archives and um, wonderful research on just about anybody in American history. What drew you to write a book about Edith Wilson? Edith is endlessly fascinating, and I think there are all kinds of incomplete or even just overtly wrong narratives out there about her, including when I was first um, giving a lot of talks about suffrage around the centennial of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, a bunch of people asked me if... Woodrow Wilson had ultimately changed his mind on federal suffrage because she had whispered in his ear. There was some story out there that she had kind of behind the scenes changed his mind. It's completely untrue. She was anti-suffrage till the very end. But um, I started looking into her story to try to answer those questions more accurately. And I realized not only was she fascinating, but that the existing biographies of her really only concentrated on the time that she was married to him. And that's, you know, 10% of her life, 10% of anyone's life can't possibly give a complete whole human picture of someone. Um, But also, you know, the sources other than when she was first lady 
were a little hard to come by. Um, there were often her own memoir, which is at points demonstrably untrue. So she's an unreliable narrator of her own life. Mm. So it, it was tricky for sure. You know, uh, that's right. When we get into the book, we see a lot of uh, Edith's early life. And I'm glad you mentioned that that she was opposed to the suffrage movement, which is sort of shocking because of the way she was raised. I mean, there are examples of her father, including her in meetings. She had there, the women in her life had very strong personalities, but at the same time, there was this kind of concept of, I think you call it true womanhood that existed when Edith was young. So as you were writing this book, um, how did you see that early childhood with this concept of what it meant to be a perfect a domestic woman of her time with this real passion and zest that she had for life and wanting to try things and her curiosity about the world. You know, I think you've really hit on sort of the fundamental contradiction that explains a lot of Edith Wilson. She, um, you know, she was born in 1872 in Southwest Virginia in Withville. So she's growing up in reconstruction era, Virginia. Um, her family had been plantation-owning Confederates. They definitely thought they had come down in the world, uh, living above storefronts in a little Appalachian town instead of in the you know gracious James River Valley, Valley that they had occupied for generations. And she was getting these two very conflicting lessons by her own admission, because both of her grandmothers lived with her. And her mother's mother and her mother herself were big advocates of this cult of true womanhood, this Victorian notion that the ideal woman was feminine and submissive and pious and excelled in the domestic arts and had no ambition outside of that. But her father's mother, who was by all accounts terrifying, picked out Edith as special among her very many grandchildren and told her she was smart and she was capable and there were things she could do all within the confines of, you know, 19th century Southern women's expectations. It's not like she was telling her she could be president, but she was making sure she was educated. She was telling her that um, Edith's sort of natural confidence and smarts were an asset, not a liability. And I think a lot of Edith's ongoing contradictions as an adult where she, behind the scenes, leaned into her natural inclination for self-confidence and um, ability to sort of handle any situation. She cloaked it in these uh, narratives of hyper-femininity, and she was only there to help the man in the room. Um, and I think without trying to analyze someone too deeply 150 years later, um, I think that early conflicting lesson explains a lot, a lot of that. Yes, it uh, that that is an, a vital background and probably something that most people would not know about about Edith. When we get into Edith, sort of co her coming of age, she arrives in Washington D.C. in I believe it's the year eighteen ninety, and. I I loved this the scenes that you wrote here because it made me realize as a reader that had Edith landed in Boston or New York at that age coming from her background she may not have made her way in the world in this in the same manner. So can you tell us what Washington DC was like in 1890 for Edith? 
Washington in 1890 was just booming. And I have to say, Washington, D.C. is kind of a minor character in this story throughout. So I'm delighted you found it interesting because I'm a local and it's a little bit hard to separate your own perspective on what people who didn't grow up here and live here currently uh, feel about Washington. But because um, post-Civil War Washington was just booming in a way that was really hard to characterize, like just tens of thousands of people moving to town, huge new money coming to town. Um, the city fathers in a sort of effort to keep the capital from moving west, because there was real talk about that, had embarked on a massive public works project. So suddenly the streets were getting paved and there were streetcars and lights and plumbing and sewage, you know, things that the city really hadn't had. And a lot of those kind of shiny, somewhat questionable Gilded Age fortunes were coming here to town. It became as fashionable to have a winter home in Washington as it was to have a summer home in Newport. And some of that was because if you were a little bit of a parvenu and your money was brand new and nobody in you know New York's Mrs. Astor's ballroom could knew who you were and who your people were, you could break into society here in Washington. It was just a much more flexible social norm, even at the highest levels. So if you think about, you know, Edith Wharton and Mark Twain had characters in the Gilded Age who come to Washington because the social strictures were less less um, confining than they were in hidebound New York or Boston or Philadelphia. Yes. And as you describe Edith, she is elegant. She's impeccably dressed. She's beautiful. And she managed to catch the eye of, well, many, many men. Um, but <laughs> but um, eventually she married um, a man named Norman Galt, who was a prominent jeweler in Washington. And that sort of trajectory of her life really set the stage for when we get to her marriage with um, President Wilson. But what can you tell us about that marriage to Norman Galt and why that was so significant and unusual for the time? Norman Galt was by all accounts a perfectly nice man, maybe a little boring. Um, he was several years older than Edith and his cousin was married to Edith's older sister. So it was all appropriate. Um, and he ran, as you said, this jewelry store in town, Galt and Brothers, which was sort of like the Tiffany's of Washington, right? It was the place that everybody went for their silver and jewelry, starting from back when Washington was still a construction site. And so he was this upstanding citizen. He ran a prominent, well-respected, high-end local business. He sat on all the right boards. He went to all the right churches. And he, if a little boring, was definitely security for Edith. And she um, is very condescending to him in her memoir. She talks about how, oh, I finally decided to marry Norman. And then their 12-year marriage gets like two paragraphs. And then by 1908, Norman is dead. And he left the business to her, which in 1908 was still unusual enough that had she had children, particularly male children, had Norman's father been alive, had his brother not been an invalid, you can see a scenario where her ownership of this business would have been contested by a man. But because they were childless and because he uh, married women's property rights had started kind of catching up to reality um, by the beginning of the 20th century, she was able to inherit Galt's. And that made her 
an unusually independent woman in a very patriarchal society. She had her own money. She was a widow, so she didn't need chaperones. She had no children. And she was able to be this sort of socially prominent, elegant woman, widow of means in Washington. She became the first woman to get a driver's license in town. She tooled around town in her little electric car. She went to Europe every year and bought fabulous hats and gowns from the House of Worth. Um, She, as you might expect from a jewelry store owner, had really good jewelry. And she became somebody in a way that was unusual for women at the time. Well, here she is living in Washington with this in this wonderful single, I'm going to travel anywhere mode. And the meanwhile, over at the White House, President uh, Woodrow Wilson's wife has passed away. And it's not that long before he meets Edith. And my goodness, this really, uh, this really presented a new power couple in Washington. Very unusual. Yeah, I, you certainly don't expect sort of professorial, extremely intellectual Woodrow Wilson to be writing racy love letters, but there it is. Um, so Edith was enjoying her widowhood, and uh, she had a good friend named Carrie Grayson, who was Woodrow Wilson's doctor um, and good close friend. And after um, Ellen Wilson, Woodrow's first wife, died, he was, by all accounts, truly desolate. It had been a happy marriage. He was miserably unhappy and lonesome. So he was kind of alone in a way he had never been. His cousin, Helen Bones, was serving as first lady to the degree that she could, Um, but she was also grieving. And so Carrie Grayson came to Edith and said, Helen Bones needs a friend. Will you please just hang out with her? And Edith said, no way. I don't want any part of the White House. That's not my world. And he said, she, you don't need to be a White House person. You don't need to be in high society. Just take her for walks in Rock Creek Park. Just be kind. And Edith sort of couldn't resist anyone who appealed to her better manners. And so she befriends Helen. And one day, Helen sort of insists that instead of going back to Edith's house, they go back to the White House. And Edith refused because she had just gotten her boots very muddy walking in the park. And Helen, who was fairly meek, really insisted in this unusual, suspicious way. So Edith, you know, finally has to kind of cave in. Helen assures her, no one will be there. It'll be fine. We'll just go up in the elevator to the private quarters. We'll have tea. It'll be fine. Looking back, it was clearly a setup. There's no way that both Helen and Carrie Grayson didn't plan out what happened next because reluctant Edith goes to the White House, the elevator door opens, and there's Carrie Grayson and the president. The president was, by all accounts, smitten from the moment. I mean, absolutely gaga gone from the second he sees her and begins writing these very mushy, romantic letters to her. And she writes back and she's very polite. Um, I mean, who wouldn't be polite? But she, she from the early days writes things like, you know, that's lovely. You want to kiss my eyelids. Isn't that romantic? But you know what? Let's talk about William Jennings Bryan. And do you think he's going to quit the cabinet? And who do you think is going to replace him? And, you know, she, she's saying sort of, okay, with the mushy mushy, can we talk politics? Uh, from the very, very beginning of their courtship. She was wooed more from policy deliberations than the actual love love letters. So right there, just even that little um, 
that little data point about Edith should should say so much about what we don't know about her. So, um, so as you're talking about this, I, President Wilson was ready to marry her probably after they met the second time, like a minute, like a minute, right, right yeah. within the minute. Edith is reluctant. She likes her life. She doesn't want to be part of the White House scene, but eventually she accepts. Um, the marriage proposal. So we have this young, beautiful, new incoming um, first lady. How was this accepted by the media and the public? It was touch and go for a minute there. I think um, there was definitely concern within Wilson's closest circle that people would think he was moving on from Ellen too quickly. So Ellen died August of 1914. He met Edith in March of 1915. They married in December of 1915. So it was quite quick. And even though federal suffrage hadn't passed yet, more states were enfranchising women. And so there was some concern that with more women voters, they in particular would think that the president had not done right by his first wife. And Edith herself was so reluctant to be first lady and so reluctant to be seen as, as she said, marrying the office, not the man that when she first accepted his proposal, she said, I'll marry you if you lose re-election. <laughs> I'll marry you. Did she think that he was going to lose the election? Yeah, she, she, she hoped, she certainly hoped he was going to lose the election. And the election in 1916 was a nail biter. So she wasn't wrong. But um, he only heard, I'll marry you. He didn't hear, I'll marry you if. Um, and by the time the fall of 1915 came around. She said, okay, I'll marry you, win or lose. I'm I'm up for it. I'll do it. She was universally beloved by the press at first. They found her fascinating. And she wouldn't give any interviews. She was never um, in front of the spotlight herself. But they loved how... Um, real it made him seem, you know, because he was such a stick in the mud and he um, was a great moralist. It was his defining characteristic. And so to see him sort of laughing and joking and being charming and being in love made them love her for playing that role. And she became quite a favorite with the gossip columns. And um, she remained kind of enigmatic because she didn't give interviews herself, but her coverage was almost universally positive. Okay. So this is so interesting because not only was Edith not part of the um, acquisition, not the acquisition of power, but the rise to power as um, Wilson became president and then won, won another term, she, she, she fit in very differently than most political spouses. So I'm, tell us about what kind of first lady she was, because maybe she got away with being something that was so perfect for Edith because of what was going on at the, at the time in the world. Well, let's stipulate that the role of first lady is a bananas job, right? It has all of this accountability <laughs> and no, right? And there's no job description. Um, you have to kind of learn as you go. Edith became first lady overnight. And not only is there no job description, it changes because there's this expectation that the first lady will, to some degree, kind of reflect ideal American womanhood. And ideal American womanhood is a moving target. And especially from 1915 to 1921, the year she was in the White House, it was moving in real time. 
And so she had to kind of figure out who she wanted to be to the public, what persona she wanted to present, really kind of overnight. And what she chose was the very best Mrs. Woodrow Wilson she could be. She was all about him. Um, she went everywhere he went, which made her unusual. Um, she showed up at everything, including ultimately in Paris to negotiate the treaty at the end of World War I. And they were gone for the better part of six months, which is fairly shocking now. It was truly shocking then. No president had really left the country for more than an afternoon, um, you know, Teddy Roosevelt inspecting the Panama Canal kind of thing. And Woodrow Wilson is proposing being gone in Europe for six months, and she's going with him. And so she, because she was present at these world-altering times and in these unprecedented moves, she is there at Buckingham Palace. She's there with, you know, Italian royalty. She is um, featured in all of the international press coverage in a way that no presidential spouse could possibly have been before. And now, you know, we think of that kind of public diplomacy role, that soothing international feathers as very much part of what the first lady does. But she pioneered it. Um, she was much more confident and socially adept than Wilson was. She didn't mind asking a bunch of questions that he was too embarrassed to ask. She spoke French, kinda. She had been taught French by her grandmother, and her grandmother was self-taught, so her French pronunciation was a little eccentric. But she didn't, Edith didn't mind. She'd barrel her way on through and mispronounce words and, you know, make everybody feel at ease in a way that Woodrow Wilson never, ever could. Um, and so because she was the kind of person she was, but also because she was living through the times she was living through, she just changed the first lady role in a way you see developing throughout the 20th century. Let me remind listeners, my guest today is Rebecca Boggs Roberts. Her new book is Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. It's uh, newly published. And I I think what I'm, what, what I'm hearing and what I'm more fully absorbing is that uh, while Edith Wilson wasn't um, one to marry for romantic uh, purposes, once she was in this marriage to pres with President Wilson, she was completely devoted to him. She took up the task of what needed to be done and nothing really phased her. So by the time she got back from this, uh, this trip from Europe, which as you described was really the first of its kind, the, uh, a, a sort of big moment in uh, an inflection point, perhaps, for how first ladies accompany uh, the president. Um, she was quite prepared to take on the task when President Wilson fell ill. And, you know, gatekeeping is one of those time-honored traditions in Washington, D.C., where we really get to examine that line between what is real and what is fiction, what's going on at the White House. What did you learn about Edith's role when President Wilson had, uh, had fallen ill? So if anyone knows anything about Edith Wilson, it's that in 1919, when Woodrow Wilson suffered a massive stroke, she stepped in and served the executive function while he was sick. 
if you are surprised by her doing that, then you weren't paying any attention to Edith Wilson before that moment. She showed time and again that her whole MO was, I will deal with it. Maybe I've never dealt with it before. Maybe I don't have the credentials you think I need to deal with it, but I trust my own smarts and my own ability to bluff my way through this. And she did. She, along with Dr. Carrie Grayson and Joe Tumulty, who was Wilson's secretary but functioned as his chief of staff, they perpetuated this massive conspiracy to keep the truth of how sick he was, not just from the press and the Congress, but from the cabinet, the other members of the executive branch, from the vice president, from, in many ways, the president himself. They didn't really let him know how sick he was. And in the months, months that this secret was kept, Edith was the one who was meeting with people, um, drafting statements saying they were coming from him, uh, handling all of the correspondence, and people learned to address things to her during that time. And she decided how they would be answered. She she said she always consulted with him about how they would be answered. Impossible to know whether or not that's true. But for literally months in the fall of 1919 and spring of 1920, it was Edith who was managing what came to the president, and what went back out to people needing to do business with the executive branch. It's astonishing and makes the concept of Edith's opposition to the suffrage movement all the more confounding. Did you find anything during your research that that suggested that she um, had thought a little differently about women voting? I mean, here she is at the at the center of power, did anything, did, did she did she deliberate in her mind or was she absolute in her sort of conviction that that was not something that women needed to do in this country? Her anti-suffrage stance, I find fascinating because yes, she ultimately was wielding amazing political power, but even before that, she was this independent business owning driving, you know, woman who literally driving a car woman who was breaking all kinds of social norms. And um, the idea that she didn't want to experience the rights of a full citizen floored me. I think that um, in later years, she just found a lot of the tactics of suffrage activists, especially the more radical members of the National Women's Party, she found their tactics tacky and aggressive. And especially once they started picketing the White House in 1917 and, and very pointedly criticizing Wilson, she she wanted no part of that. But if she just found it all a little not nice, and there were definitely women who, from a sort of classist per- perspective, didn't like suffragism, she did have social cover for that. There were plenty of fancy socialite women in Washington who were part of the movement. I think ultimately, and she never said why she was anti-suffrage, but I think ultimately there was just part of her that agreed with millions of women who felt that it really wasn't appropriate, that there was something about being out in the public sphere that way and dirtying their hands in politics that was a little... um, 
unfeminine and not nice. Now, of course, the irony is she was dirtying her hands with politics much more than any mere voter ever would. But she managed to not see the irony of that. She described herself as not especially political till the day she died. And she never thought that that was contradictory to the fact that she was enormously political and had been from the second the president started writing her mash notes. So it it is amazing. It is one of many contradictions that make her very hard to characterize. And again, the title is Untold Power, The Fascinating Rise and Complex Legacy of First Lady Edith Wilson. The author is Rebecca Boggs Roberts. Rebecca, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Lori. Thank you. You've been listening to Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. Real Fiction broadcasts on KXCV. It is also available on the Bearcat public media app. All episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts and on realfictionradio.com. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Thanks for listening.